Take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 40, the last one. I know y'all are disappointed. (laughs) Finishing the tabernacle construction. And against all of your requests, we are not going directly into Leviticus. Nah, again, I'm teasing. We're going to, uh, we'll be in Revelation 1 next week, actually. Yeah, I will be preaching through the whole book. I'm just going to hit the beginning of it, but uh, Revelation 1. So, uh, Exodus chapter 40, this is God's word. It was written for you a long time ago, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony. You shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle and of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames. He put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the screen for the door of the tabernacle and set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron washed his, and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. He erected the cord around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So, Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. Fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's pray. Father, we do ask your blessing upon your word. The reading, which we have just heard, and now the preaching. Give life and light to our hearts, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Some folks are blessed with that amazing ability to think in such a spatial way that you can show them a picture and they know how that object will be. What it'll feel like, what it'll, it'll act like, what its function will be, that they can get the, the total picture of it. Uh, having, I guess, built a house this year and now getting ready to build a, you know, a church building, that was one of the neat and intriguing things about the process of starting to pick out floor plans for a house and trying to figure out from this drawing... What is the house going to feel like? Well, what's, what's the atmosphere of the home going to be when the walls are up and the roof is on? Is it, is it going to be dark and claustrophobic? Is it going to be so open that it's not useful? What, what, what's the house going to feel like? That's what we've been really thinking through with, uh, I guess, all of the dirt moving out here and now the pretty pictures of the building in the back and uh, getting ready to make that happen. Uh, you know, we can talk about it and think about it and go, but how is it actually going to feel? Like, we want to build a building that sings well, but you know, honestly, we won't know that until we get into it and hear everybody sing and how the sound bounces, and we're doing our best. What's it going to feel like with the, the windows on the top and the light reflecting in? And Maybe you've been given that great gift where you can visualize it and kind of wrap your mind around it. I have not yet been given that gift. To see how the property is going to feel with the, the dirt being moved and then the building in and how it's all going to be. And as I think about that with the new sanctuary and think about that with the new building and think about that with the dirt moving and all those things, it gets me excited. I'm ready to see what it's like. And to think about, really, Exodus 40 is the chapter where all of that kind of comes to its fruition for Israel. The final bit. They've been given the instructions of how to build God's house, and now we actually get to see it. Well, we don't. They did. 
It tells us here, verses 16, 17, kind of there, it gives us a little bit of a timeline as to what's happened. They've been at Sinai at this point for about nine months. The Lord brought them out of Egypt, miraculously took them to Mount Sinai. They've been there for nine months. Uh, It's been approximately six months since the whole kind of golden calf fiasco, we might call it. The covenant renewal ceremony and the Lord explaining exactly what he once built. So it's really been six months that they've been working on this holy tent. And you'd have to imagine as you're, you're working on it, how you would have those same sort of questions that I have about the building we're getting ready to build. What is this thing going to look like? I mean, everything that we're building is more or less wrapped in gold, more or less, or it's got really fancy embroidery. And you've got all different kind of craftsmen doing all the different kind of jobs. And that's the weird part about putting a tent like this, where it's probably not even all assembled in the same part of the camp. You've got these workmen over here that are working on maybe the the gold-encrusted poles. And we have the work ladies over here that are working on, uh, you know, turning the goat's hair into fine yarn so that that yarn can be used for embroidery. Not everybody's kind of seen it all in one place, but you would be wondering, like, what is this place going to be? I mean, think about it. We're talking about a nation that's been enslaved in the slums of Egypt. And they're constructing a solid gold tent or gold-encrusted tent. What is this place going to be? In chapter 40, it finally all comes together. It's the final construction. We've got all the parts finished, and now we need to assemble them for the first time. And Moses does so. And it's awesome, as you might expect. The challenge for us, though, reading today is, as we get to this, we understand this is creating a perpetual worship system. Perpetual means lasting. It continues, and it's on and on. It's really amazing to think that Exodus chapter 40 is the beginning of the worship services that Jesus himself participated in. I mean, think about really the the showbread, the offerings, the washing in the base. All of that begins in Exodus chapter 40. It continues through this time, through the kings and through the fiascos that follow. It stops for a while while the temple's destroyed. It restarts when the temple's rebuilt. It's the same perpetual service, in essence, that Jesus is worshiping in. It's the same perpetual priesthood. We got that there in verse 15. These priests that are set aside, Aaron and his sons, it's the same lasting priesthood that's continued. But there's a little bit of a disconnect for us because even while this entire system is established in Exodus chapter 40, none of us have ever experienced, well, as best I know you, none of us have ever experienced it. I I don't know. Maybe some of you are extremely old and were able to go to the temple before it was destroyed in 70 AD. I don't know. (laughs) We've not been this. We, We don't know the tabernacle. It was gone a long time ago. And then the temple was built and then destroyed and then rebuilt and then destroyed. And there's one wall standing and the Jews still weep at it today. But this isn't what our worship service is like. 
fact, actually, the priesthood is dissolved and it's been changed. And we have to ask the question, it's the one I deal with all the time in preaching, really and truly, so what? I mean, I don't really care if they finished building the tabernacle. It's neat and all, but it doesn't really help me when I have to go to work tomorrow and not strangle my coworkers. <laughs> and honestly, part of it is really, it, it, it's important for us to think about chapter 40 for the categories that it introduces. So much of the Old Testament is introducing the categories that we think about. Uh, and categories are really helpful because they help us, you know, you hear data and you can immediately put it into uh, a category. You don't have to think twice about it because you know the category fits. I'll give you an example. You have a category in your mind so that when I say ketchup, what do you immediately think of? You think of a red tomato sauce that's usually a little bit slightly sweet that some of you really love, like it's going out of style and some of you don't really enjoy. But if you've ever paid attention, actually most ketchup say on the bottle is a tomato ketchup because they're providing an actual category for you because original ketchup was founded in Britain a long time ago and it was actually a fish sauce. Yes, that's correct. A salty fish sauce. That was terrible. So that if I were today, let's say we all decided to go on a trip together and we went to northern England and they would serve you fish and you had asked for ketchup for your fries. Well, you got the wrong category, don't you, friend? Because you're expecting uh, that little bit of ketchup red sauce for your fries. One, they're not bringing you fries because that's not what fries are. They're called chips there. And two, they're bringing you fish sauce to dip your French fries in. And I'm not okay with that. It's important to have those categories because it helps us think about life today. We can take data and place it into the correct place. And the category that is largely the overarching category that is introduced here is, again, the idea of God's house. Now, the challenge, again, is for the Jews, it's a geographical place. If you wanted to go visit God He had an actual, literal, geographical house. And from 34 to 38, you could literally tell if he was home or not. You could walk by the tent and either the glory cloud was there or it wasn't. And you could see, oh, look, God's home. It's those neighbors that the second they get home, they turn on every light in the house. And you're like, oh, look, the Smiths are home. Every light's on. They're not home. They've turned off every... It's the same kind of situation. You'll be able to tell. God was at his house because every light was on. It's a geographical place. The problem becomes when we take the wrong category and then begin to apply it today. To think that this is a Bible passage that's lecturing us and teaching us about God's geographical house today. Maybe we have to go back and win back Jerusalem. Maybe we need to get rid of the mosque that's on Temple Mount and rebuild the temple. No, we don't need that. Maybe, maybe we're worried, we need to, all of these applications are immediately going to apply to our new building out there. Maybe we just need to be excited because we're building a solid golden crusted building just right across the parking lot. You guys have given generously. You have not given that generously. <laughs> 
No, it's because in the New Testament, it takes categories that are introduced in the Old, and then it changes them just a little bit so they get more meaning. And always a better meaning. In the Old Testament, here in 40, we have a category of God's house is where God lives. God lives in his house. Now, it's geographical. It's one specific location. But in the New Testament, it's then tweaked into two different things. In John chapter 1, God's house is where God lives. It actually takes this same word, this idea of tabernacle. It kind of morphs the word a little bit there. And Robert did us a really good favor in the order of worship and puts it there, crams it in in John 1. That the word tabernacle lived among us. He, he, he became man. So God's house is now no longer connected to this physical building that may or may not exist out there or may or may not exist in Jerusalem. At any point, doesn't, none of those. It's connected to a man. The God-man, Jesus Christ, who would proclaim that he is God incarnate inside humanity and would go to a cross and would die on a cross to pay for the sins of his people and would be raised and ascend to glory. So God's house would be a singular man, which, I mean, it would have melted the brains of the Jews. That's why they get so angry at him. You realize when the Jews kill him, they're being consistent. They have believed all along that God's residence is one geographical house. And now you have a man saying, I am that God and his residence is me. Well, we can't have that. That's blasphemy. Problem is, Jesus was right, they were wrong. But as the story continues, he dies, he's resurrected, comes back to life, fully human, fully alive, ministers for a little while to his church, and then he leaves again. If you're reading the cover, you know, reading the Bible cover to cover, you know, good on you, read about cover to cover, get through Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, well done, get all that, you know, that. But the thing that you would have kind of had a problem with when you get there is when Jesus ascends to heaven there, you would have been like genuinely dumbstruck. I mean, the whole story leading up to this is God's people are just failure after failure after failure. And here you have Jesus saying, look, it's better that I go away. That's literally been the only good part so far. And then he goes away and says, look, what we're going to have now is a new arrangement. Where God's house now isn't just in me incarnate, it's in you. So that when God works in creation, it's not just through me, it's through you. And if again, you're reading the Bible cover to cover for the first time, you would think, God, you've made a mistake. That's a terrible game plan. I mean, these people are a mess. We literally, I mean, think about all of the books of the Bible you would have read at that point. How many of them... God's people do the right thing the whole way through. You'll be hard-pressed to find those books. They're, they're a mess. And yet here you have Jesus saying, look, I'm going to go back to heaven and you're going to be God's house. Not the building, not the walls, not the prefabricated building on the back of the property at 1070 Gold Hill Road. You humans will be God's house. And all of those categories and all of those truths that you saw all throughout the Old Testament that applied to God's residence then now apply to you. Wow. 
all of what Exodus 40 is telling us about God's tabernacle now begins to apply to us. Because we are where God lives. First, we look at three just kind of general principles along the way of what God's house is like. Chapter 40 starts, the Lord spoke to Moses saying on the first day of the first month, New Year's Day kind of thing, a big fancy shindig. You get the impression they'd actually had this stuff finished, but they were holding it until God told them to put it together. On this first day, religious festival, you are going to assemble everything. And it basically describes it more or less if you're facing north, left to right, more or less. If you're not one of those visual thinkers, that's fine. Go buy a study Bible. There's pictures in the back. (laughs) Put everything together, verses 1 through 8. That's your summary of verses 1 through 8. Michael's translation. Put it all where it's supposed to go. But then verse 9 is where it actually gets interesting. Because not only do you just put it together, you put it in the right place, but that's not enough. It's not enough to have just the parts where they belong. It's that they have to be holy. Then you shall take the anointing oil, the holy anointing oil. And then you have to go and you have to anoint the tabernacle. And you have to anoint all that is in it so that it may become holy. Now, what does it mean for something to be holy? What does that word mean? In Hebrew, the word meant heavy. The hippies from the 60s, one thing they did actually get really right is when they said, man, that's heavy. That that actually is proper use of the word, right? Weighty, it's serious. It was something worth considering. It is heavy. Hebrew, that's your word here for glory. It connects to that. And what it means is it's something that's so different It's not to be taken lightly. You don't just goof around with it. You don't, oh, I'll just play with it. It's fine. It's something different. It's set aside. It's weighty. It's serious. It's majestic. In verse 9, Moses has to go through and has to anoint basically all of these things, which is really astonishing because thinking about setting aside this tabernacle for a different usage would have been completely kind of different for them to think about. They've spent the last 400 years, most of which was spent in the slums of Egypt. The only time they've ever stepped in any nice place was when it belonged to an Egyptian. And here God has brought them out and said, you're going to build the most amazing thing you've ever seen, and it's going to belong to your God, and it's going to become part of your traveling town. Wherever Israel goes, this goes with you. It's yours. It belongs to God in your midst. And yet God's saying, look, golden crusted, beauty everywhere, beautiful colors, lovely appearance. That's not enough. It has to be set aside for me. It has to be holy. It has to be my particular thing. And I love how it's almost amusing how intense it is. Take this anointing oil and set it on everything. So you, you know, put a couple of drops on the basin, put drops on the, you know, everything in there to, to mark it aside. You know, maybe get your thumb and rub it on, whatever. Even to the point where Aaron and the dudes that come after him have to have the same thing that happens. 
They have to be set aside. You bring them out in front of the temple and you wash them. Now, does that, that does not bring that you, you bring like the big cattle tub in and they're, you know, getting awkwardly scrubbed by Moses in really an uncomfortable way right there in front of the temple and the whole nation watches. More likely, it means they were sprinkled with this holy water, sprinkled with this holy oil uh, as a symbolic act of washing. But to mark them as priests, to set them aside. God's house is a holy house. That is important. That is extremely important when it comes time to think about God's people. That the operative, definitive essence of who God's creatures, God's people are, His church. We are to be holy people. There's beauty connected to that. One is that the second that you become a Christian, you are immediately holy in some fashion. You are different from everyone else. It's called positional holiness. You are unique. You changed. You're different. You belong to God. And it then gives the command that we are as God's people to work that holiness out. And that order is correct and important. God makes us holy first and then it is then acted out in our lives. But I do wonder how much the American church has lost that idea that the very definition of who God's people are supposed to be are holy. Interestingly, it's not happy. That is a byproduct of holiness often. It's not happy. It's not filled with pleasure, having a good life. Again, I I will talk about this often. You will hear this illustration a number of times. We're approaching the holiday season, and I hate correctly using that word, the luxury car commercials. I despise them because of how much they highlight. Just, I am called to fulfill all of my pleasures. No, you're called to be a holy person. Don't do that. I'm not saying luxury cars are bad. Those cars are bad. I like them. I hate the commercials. <laughs> we are called to be defined by our holiness shaping who we are and how we are. And again, I wonder in the American church how much we would say, actually, we're defined more by our hypocrisy than our holiness. Defined more by our failures than by our successes. Now, are we going to be perfect? Of course not. But is that the definitive thing? Robert Murray McShane, a, a, a Scottish pastor, brilliant, one of the great ones. He died at, I think, 29, connected to a gymnastics accident, weirdly enough. Yep, he liked to do the uh, parallel bars for a hobby, and he fell and hurt himself, and it got him sick enough that he ended up dying from it. Strange things in the church. But in talking about preaching and talking about pastors, he said the single most important thing for a, a pastor's people need is for their pastor to be holy. It was intriguing. He didn't say they need to know the scriptures. He didn't say they need to know how to preach. He didn't need to say they need to be brilliant theologians or amazing office managers. They need to be holy. Your your people's greatest need is their pastor's holiness, is the way he would phrase it, which is a bit melodramatic, but you get the point. Again, that's McShane. Think about for our own lives how much that does not enter into our thinking that frequently. We go about our lives thinking about money and thinking about our families and thinking about our pleasures and our desires and how to avoid pain and how to keep from being miserable and we don't spend time thinking about how to be holy in Christ. 
Second thing that would have shown up here is the consequence of this holiness is that this entire building relationship the tabernacle would have had with God's people would have been one. They would have immediately understood it was so different, so unique, so special. It was always marked by a mediator. Once the tabernacle is assembled the first time, you don't go in it. You have to have a mediator do it for you. It's really intriguing the kind of interworkings of how this happens. Right? So verse um, 16, Moses starts acting on God's commands. And this is awesome. This Moses did. When you sum up my life, God's commands, I would love for it to be that. This Michael did. If that was my epitaph, it'd be a great day, wouldn't it? Moses is faithfully does everything according to all the Lord commanded him, and he puts it together. And you see verses 16 uh, all the way following through 33. It's Moses assembling the entire tabernacle. This, at this point, slightly older gentleman who is putting together this tent of God. And to think of how heavy it had to have been and how he got it all done, I don't know, but he does it. But interestingly, he's functioning as a mediator for all of God's people. They are not allowed to do it. He has to do it. But the second it's completed, he's no longer allowed in anymore. Because he's not the priest. He's gone. He's cut off. He's finished. He's done his mediatorial work of getting it put together. Now it's time for the priests to be mediators. And you would get this visual object lesson constantly of you have to have a mediator to go into God's presence. You have to have a mediator to go into God's presence. This would get picked up in the New Testament as Jesus Christ himself would be that mediator so that he would say, if you want to know the Father, who do you have to know? You have to know the Son, Jesus Christ. You want to have your sins forgiven so you may go into the life to come. You have to know the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have a mediator. And the beautiful thing is, is it not me? And it's not you one mediator, King Jesus. He's the permanent mediator. I love how in verse 15 it highlights a perpetual priesthood and this priesthood lasts all the way until Jesus shows up and then he is the priesthood incarnate. We get rid of all the other priests. He is the ultimate priest. That's why I'm a pastor, not a priest. That priesthood's fulfilled in King Jesus So that you will always have this relationship of the mediator. You do not go to God directly. You go through the priest, in this case, Christ Jesus. Christ and Christ alone. Now this is again important as we live in a culture that values the marketplace of ideas. And we value different opinions and we value even different religions. We value different everything. And to think that we've even gotten to the point now where so many are quick to say, well, there's many paths to heaven. No, there's one priest. It's the Lord Christ. And if you don't know that one priest, unfortunately the path is closed. Doesn't make me happy to say that. That's not a part that I'm like, yay, this is the easy part of my job. There's one priest, Christ Jesus, and no one else. And even though we live in a world that values everything except for truth claims, we have to explain there is one answer. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's our task I'm summed up in the Great Commission that way. Make disciples, baptizing and teaching. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is this Trinitarian explanation. We're called to that. 
My favorite of these three, though, is the last one. These three kind of things we see about God's residence is the last one, verses 34 through 38. God tells Moses to put it together. Moses puts it together. Moses immediately kind of done. You get the end of verse 33, so Moses finished the work. And then verse 34, this is the kind of fancy theological Hebrew way of explaining God moves in. He moves in. Uh, The cloud that covered the tent, so we've had this going over the the top of the mountain where God resides, it moves into the tabernacle. Now, this cloud is not what we think of with clouds today as the big fluffy water vapor things, or even the ones outside right now that are just kind of gray and blah. You know, more often than not, I think many of us kind of get in the mental image like the water vapor that comes out of the giant smokestacks uh, at factories, the condensation tubes. No, 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 no. Cloud in Hebrew, the way this is working is it's a glory cloud. So think more closely what the clouds look like the second the lightning pops. Where it's a cloud, you can't see through it, but there's obviously brilliance inside. This cloud moves into the temple to the point where uh, you can see the brightness outside. How bright does a room have to be that in the daylight you can see the light shining outside? Have you ever tried that? Like, just take your, your cell phone and turn on the little flashlight on your cell phone, and you can't see it unless you look at, like, right in the eyeball. You can't tell the difference. But instead, God's glory comes into the temple or into the tabernacle here. And it's so beautiful. It shines. It even outshines the daylight. That's during the day. Then at night, sun sets, everything gets dark except that. And it just is radiant. Again, so you can tell God is home. And how can you tell that God is home? Because glory spills out over the edges. I love that thought. That when God resides in his house, it's like glory is contagious. It just bubbles over and just kind of spills out. In many ways, it's like, uh, again, tell what station of life I'm at, but trying to do like finger painting with children. Like, all right, here's the deal. You're going to stick your fingers in the paint, and then it's going to go directly on the paper. And three days later, you find it on the ceiling in the bathroom. And you're like, I don't know how it got there. But it's contagious. It's, it contaminates everything. It just matters to, it manages to go everywhere. We did this in the kitchen, on the kitchen table. Somehow my closet would get finger paint. How? I don't know. It's in my car. How did you children do that? You're not tall enough to reach it. Manufacturer's story, but you get the illustration, right? God's glory spills out over the edges. And it's intriguing because that's another way to think about really our mission in this world. As we as God's creatures, as God's church, as God's people are to be these vessels of glory so that glory is spilling out over the edges. So that when our hope and our love and our faith are put on display, God's glory radiates in his people. So that when our kindness and our charity are put on display, God's glory radiates in his people. So the gentleness that we display in a culture that loves to be harsh, God's glory is put on display. 
I su- again, suggest maybe this is probably one of those things that we tend to not maybe think about that often about life. Part of your task on this planet is to be a vessel for the glory of God. Part of why the Lord tells you to obey his commands, because it's good for you. Part of it, because they're his commands. But part of it is because you're a vessel for his glory. How do you glorify him? By loving him and what was it? doing his commands, keeping his commands, obeying what he said. It's interesting. It puts a totally different perspective on God's law, doesn't it? It's not something I have to keep because, oh, no, I'm afraid of his eternal judgment. I can't have that. That's already given to Jesus. Instead, I keep his commands because I am a, a hold, holding place for his glory, and he's going to showcase his glory through me. Show a lost and dying world what glory looks like. And it's amazing when you think about it how, how poor of an understanding the world has about glory. When you think about it, what are the only things that you really think about when you use the word glory? I don't, I mean, I was thinking about it for a while. I, don't, I couldn't think of anything that was not athletics related. Maybe war glory, I guess, but it's usually connected to you won the national championship, you have that shining moment of glory, and then it's kind of done. What a poor definition. Oh, good, you won 19 games this year. Well done. The eternal God residing within me. Sorry, that's a little different. Important for us to think about that as we go forth, though, and it's going to be really important, too, again, as we think about the building there. Lord willing, we're going to have a very lovely building put up in not too long. And to be reminded, that building is not the, the storehouse of God's glory. <laughs> it's the people that he brings inside it. Our task, our mission, to be faithful to that holy calling because King Jesus has accomplished all of this. And we may rejoice in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for King Jesus. We love him and we love you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.